Thank you so much for joining us today at Grace and Peace. I know it's cold and it's about to be wintry for the next few days, so I uh, definitely appreciate it. Someone likes winter. I know exactly who likes winter, um, mostly because he gets to wear his puffy jackets. And so, but welcome to Grace and Peace. One of the values that we have at Grace and Peace is what we talk about something called authentic unity. And what in the world does that mean? It can mean a lot of different things, but. Um, one of the things it means is this. If you got sin, come on in, is what it means. It's mostly because we don't want to be able to, we don't want to be a people who put up pretenses. We are messed up, jacked up people who all need Jesus Christ. We can't fake it till we make it. We know anyone who steps in these doors has got trouble. So no use trying to fake it till you make it, because everybody knows what's going on. And so authentic unity, what it looks like is if you're from a different socioeconomic background than someone else, if you uh, have a different skin color and experience the world in a different way than someone else has in the past, it means this. That though our difference we may have differences in the way we experience the world. We all need Jesus Christ. We need to confess our need and run to him. And so authentic unity means that we are united in the gospel together despite our backgrounds. And so we are going through this book of Jonah, a book that probably reveals some of our uh, Christian nationalism, our racism. It can be a hard book to look at because the true center of the book of Jonah is actually the religious guy. The guy who's got it all together is supposed to. We're coming to our text today realizing that the book has told us that we're all runners from God. We're all Jonah in some way. Some run by being religious and covering up our feelings of inadequacy, shame, or guilt by doing uh, the youth group thing or the college ministry thing. Or the Sunday morning thing. Other runners are those who are running by doing irreligious activity. Trying to run away from God by doing anything that he would disapprove of. And running away to show him who's boss. But here Jonah and the sailors are caught by a storm that God hurls to save Jonah to draw him back. To get the gospel from his head and into his heart. And he runs away from God's call. Jonah doesn't want anything to do with it. He's running away from God's way of salvation. And he's awoken and it reveals to him that he's to blame for this storm. The storms are threatening to take down not just him but also the sailors. His sin has broken on the sailors as well. It kind of reminds me of the way that the storms have broken against all of us. Now, a few days into the shutdown, there was this viral video of Wonder Woman, Gal Gadot, singing John Lennon's Imagine, and she recruited all her buddies. She thought this would be a good idea, and she was doing a good deed. And it was probably, though, rated as the epitome of tone deafness, in more ways than one. Gal Gadot, she was quoted as saying, I felt a bit philosophical. I sought to unite the world by singing John Lennon's Imagine. And why is it tone deaf? Well, of course, there in front of their lush gardens, 
sun beaming in their faces, beautiful homes. These celebrities weren't, weren't fighting over the last rolls of toilet paper at Safeway. They were struggling to find out what they were going to do with their school-age kids. They weren't wondering what was going to happen to their job. They sat there and sang, Imagine there is no heaven into their $400 smartphone. Oh, more. He's saying more. $1,000 smartphones. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Just helping me out. Good old Peter correcting me when I need help. And in this strange disconnect of reality, they're trying to soothe their egos by ignoring God, ignoring that pain of justice that we want to know, why did this happen? This is unjust. Why are we stuck at home? Who do we blame for this? Some people, you know, just blame other countries and different things like that. And they kind of go for it because that is the default mode of their heart. Imagine there's no heaven, they say. They're trying to unite people, but only in the, way, in the end displayed how far their view of the world is from everyday people. The only thing that we're imagining now is them enjoying their steaks and wine and singing. Imagine there's no heaven. Well, that's comforting. Thank you so much. I'm glad your video went viral and you're probably getting paid for it too. It's awful. And so we're stuck here with our loved one, away from our loved ones, isolated and alone. The storms of life are breaking on us and yet this instinct takes over and it took over Gal Gadot. How do I soothe my ego? How do I be freed from feeling like I was caught? See, if John Lennon, though, is right that there's no heaven, and there's no religion, then who is there to blame? Where's justice? Where's right? Where's wrong? Where's order? If there's no justice, everything is, as Amanda Gorman says, just what is. But that isn't comforting, is it? Is it? We can't do it. What do we do with the burden of guilt that we always feel? This sneaking suspicion that it's there. Do we just cover it up by singing Imagine? No, why can't we imagine that? It's because every day we wonder who's to blame. The modern man, we all feel guilty, don't we? But we don't call it sin. Nor do we know, as, as Ernest Becker has told us, nor, does it, nor do we know where to look for healing. The modern man only looks inward to solve the problem of guilt. We try to raise up our egos to make ourselves feel better when the problem is sin and guilt. And that's shame. And so we try to exercise our egos rather than going and taking responsibility for our shame and guilt. So John Lennon, he sings to get rid of the problem. Is How do we do this? How do we make ourselves feel better? Well, get rid of those old authorities and find the true authority of self. But what do you do with justice? What do you do with right and wrong? As Albert Camus says that, we just need to imagine Sisyphus happy, rolling the boulder up the hill continuously and forever. And he's happy while he's doing it. Well, what do we do? Can we live that way? Can we live that way ignoring that hole in ourselves? Ignoring the guilt and the shame? Now, I know you guys don't do it, and I know I don't do it. Why? Because we're people that look for things like romance, fulfilling jobs, 
achieving, having enough money in the bank account, believing that I have a true and better purpose, that I need to, I, I have a better adventure than so-and-so and I can Instagram it. We do this to dull, dull the feeling of guilt. You know, and Freud says, oh, you know, guilt, it's just a neurotic holdover of the evolutionary process. But all the time we get defensive, we're scared to be found out, and we don't dare let other people down or let others down in case we, we found a fraud. We don't feel like we can ever fail. Because then our greatest fears about ourselves would be confirmed. That we're failures. We messed up. And so we need to fight against this feeling all the time. And so, if we can't just ignore it, then maybe we need to find ways to answer this. And so, where does this come from? And the Bible tells us it's because we have distance from God, and it's a relational distance. Whenever we offend somebody, you know the way this feels, right? You feel that you've earned a debt, that you owe something to somebody. Whenever you have this, uh, you know, whenever you offend someone that you love, someone you're close to, whenever they show up and walk in the door, what happens? Your ears start to burn. You know, your heart starts to race. You start to choke your esophagus. Like, what are you doing, esophagus? What, do you, it, what that is, is you know that you have a debt and you owe this to a person. And the way to actually make it up is not by soothing our egos or ignoring it. But rather, it is what we need is we do need someone to blame. And how do we get out from this blame without us being consumed and destroyed? How can we be saved? So at the same time, who do we blame for shame and guilt? And then how are we saved? And it's a substitute. Jonah tells us it's the substitute from the storm that is there to get us out. So if you're wanting to know what the essence of Christianity is... In the essence of the Bible, it is God substituting himself for man. And Jonah gives us a picture of that. Throughout the Bible, we see it over and over again. God overcoming the dis relational distance between each other by sending a substitute. Uh, you see this in the beginning of Genesis 3, where the man and the woman who have sinned against God, God himself comes after them, promises to do away with what is dividing them, and he gives them a sign that he includes them and he keeps them by giving them skins to wear, which means what? Someone's life had to be taken in order for them to have to wear clothes and be close to him still. And to be his people. In Genesis 22, Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac, only to have God stop him, knowing what was in Abraham's heart. And what does God give? Instead, he gives a young ram and spares his life, a substitute. In Leviticus 16, a bull is slaughtered in order that the blood may cover the altar so that the judgment, when, whenever the angels look down in judgment, that the flaming sword of judgment has not come on God's people who had broken God's covenant in their relationship with him, but it comes down on the blood of this substitute. 
And then also in Leviticus 16, there's this picture of a substitute that is a goat in which the high priest would lay both his hands on, would pray over the iniquities and sins of the people, transferring it from the people into this substitute, and they would cast it out of the camp. These are pictures. It is also imaged in Isaiah 52 and 53 where a representative of Israel will take upon himself the guilt and shame that they have acquired upon themselves. Jesus says that he is that substitute. He came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He says that he lays his life down for his sheep. He gives his life for his friends. And Paul says that God made him to be sin on our behalf that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Only by meeting God's justice in sin, meeting God's justice, is sin, guilt, and shame overcome. And Jonah says it real clearly in verse 12. He pictures it in this narrative. He says this, pick me up. And hurl me into the sea, then the sea will be will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. So at the heart of the biblical religion is one of God substituting for man. And Jonah says it as if God were speaking it to you. Me for you. Jonah pictures God's love by substituting himself. In Jonah's substitution, there is a reckoning of justice and a reckoning of love. A reckoning of justice and a reckoning of love. A reckoning of justice. Justice is uh, typically met with justifications. What does this mean? And so whenever there's a demand for justice, imagine if you're a teacher. And of course the teacher will come to little Johnny who pulled little Susie's hair. And the teacher comes to little Johnny and says, Johnny, why'd you do that? Justice has come to Johnny. But what does Johnny want to do? Oh, Johnny has justifications, of course. What does Johnny say? Johnny says... Well, Susie made faces at me. Susie, Susie did this and that and the other. Why? Because he wants to get off the hook. He doesn't want to be held responsible for the justice that has come to him. And at this time, justice has come visiting Jonah's door. And what does Jonah have the opportunity to do? He can run and hide from justice, but he's already been found out. And so, he's got to reckon with this justice. He's got to come clean. And so what does he say? He says, throw me in. He's come to terms with this. Either Jonah, and I can't get into his mind, and I think it's probably this first one. Either Jonah knows what justice means, means that he's going to die. And so he says, I would rather die than go preach to those dirty Ninevites. I'd rather die this way in the sea than go and preach to those guys. Or the other option is this. He, re, he, re, he looks at the sailors and says, okay, me for you. I can spare you by me dying. And he realizes he had better take it. Otherwise, these guys who are trying everything to save him are going to die. And so he decides to have himself thrown in. 
He's reasoning that running from God is running from life itself. He says it is on my account. It is happening to my credit, happening to my bank account. And that this has come to you. He's beginning to take responsibility for the guilt. Jonah realizes that his, what his sin is doing to others. Jonah realizes that his running from God has put him into debt with God, a relational debt. It has created distance. He owes God. Injustice is the time of payback. Jonah has run away from God in his life and he owes it back. And the only thing for rejecting life with God is this. is death. You reject life, what's the opposite of life? Death. And Jonah then recognizes his guilt, what it's costing the sailors. He sees them struggling in his life and he says, justice must be met. Allow it to happen to me so that you may not get it. And so Jonah has sinned against God and he can't, and he can't go unpunished. And so he decides that he'll take the debt. He'll reckon justice into himself to spare others. He's substituting himself for the others. And the sea is often this image of chaos. You know, uh, ancient Near Eastern myths was that, that life came out of the seas and it's violent and it's turbulent and it's chaos. And so for him to be thrown back into the sea is the reverse of creation. He's being thrown into death. And so he's taking death and judgment on himself. He's reckoning with justice. This is the guilt of running from God. And it's also the result of the shame of being found out. And so he's reckoning also at the same time when there's justice, he's reckoning with shame and guilt. So let's take a look at guilt here in a second. But first this. John Stott talks about substitution in this way. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where God deserves to be. God sacrifices, though, himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. At the cross, we see that it is on our account that this has come. We see then Jesus taking our sin, our guilt, and our shame upon himself, placing himself where we deserve to be. Where Jonah is bearing his own sin to save, him, save them, Jesus bears our sins to save us. And so we have this problem of guilt, right? I know we have a problem of guilt. We have a culture that has a problem of guilt. I listen to the radio and uh, Thursday mornings after I drop off my kids, I like listening to this one radio station where they have a little segment called, uh, it was a, like Dirty Little Secrets. And it's like a radio confessional booth. And this last week, I heard this lady confessing, coming clean, because she had a guilty conscience. And what was she coming clean on? It was the fact that she wasn't clean. She had been juicing. And I'm not talking about, like, carrot juice, y'all. She was taking steroids in order to make her swole and look good in the gym. And she would tell everyone that she's natural, though. And so she had to tell someone that, that she, she had to come clean to. And so we have this impu impulse to come clean, which means what about ourselves? We're feeling guilty about something. Right? How do I know this happens? I know it happens this way. Because as soon as I tell someone that I'm a pastor at a local coffee shop, loyal, a loyal coffee booth turns into a confessional booth. 
okay? They start to tell me things that I would never tell anyone else. And I'm all like, you did what in third grade? Um, why are you 32 years old? What is going on? And then the other option that they do is they start to cover it up with a bunch of justifications for their for living. What happens is, is they're a lot like Johnny, just that they're 35 years old and a lot more sophisticated about how they're covering up. They're like, but I help at food pantries. I pray. I'm a good person. I have never killed anybody. And if I did, Susie deserved it. Okay? <laughs> So that's where we are. And so we all have this guilt. We have this problem with the ego. We're like, I don't know why I feel this way. And oftentimes our impulses, our default modes of our heart tells us this is how to get rid of guilt. Some of them, our default is to just try and ignore it. Most modern people, what we do is we fill our life up with adventures, a lot of fun. And we ignore this sneaky suspicion of ourselves. We like to downplay it also. It wasn't that bad. Of course, Susie deserved it. She was a brat. Okay? If there's anyone who's named Susie here, I'm really sorry. But, oh, dang it, there was one in the first service. Darn it. Anyway, um, the next thing we do is we like to cover up by doing a lot of good. We like to cover up. And so that everyone thinks, well, that person, that person's not really a sinner. You know, if Jesus loves anybody, Jesus loves that person who's got it all together, right? And then the other one, as we like to do, is if it comes to our door, whenever we have to reckon with justice, is we like to blame shift. We like to say, ah, and, you know, yeah, let, this is the way it goes. Like, my wife will come in and say, Vince, have you thought about this? And what is my automatic default mode? It's like, uh, well, if the kids weren't bothering me, I would be this great husband. She goes, that isn't even the point. What is wrong with you? And like, that, that's the default mode that we have. Your friends come in, they're like, hey, um, we need to talk. And you're like, oh, I hate this roommate anyway. But you decide to blame shift. Or we confess it. And we say, yeah, you know what? You're probably right. This is messing with me. But we also have this problem of shame. Shame is the, fear, is the fear of being found out. Notice that what Jonah is doing, he's hiding from the Lord. He's hiding in the belly of the boat. He's feeling, he's feeling afraid to be found out that he's a fraud. You know what shame feels like? Shame feels like going to bed every night believing that you're a fraud. And that your, your, your heart starts beating because you're fearful that someone's going to find you out. You start recounting every little thing that you said that day. And you're like, oh no. It's going to end the friendship. Someone's not going to like me. Someone's going to tell on me. You're second guessing yourself all the time. And you're feeling that you're not good enough to be loved or to be saved. And so it's this ongoing fear. And so what we do often is that we close ourselves off and we protect ourselves. Because if you knew the real me, we think, you wouldn't like me. We fear that. And all this comes back to that problem of the ego. 
Gal Gadot and her friends are trying to soothe it at this moment by covering it up. So you see, we either have a fragile self-image or an overinflated self-image. The fragile self-image tells us that we're not good enough. And so we got to work harder to put it together. The overinflated self-image is just as fragile, but has worked really hard at making themselves good enough and presentable. But when you have an overinflated balloon, what happens? Two-year-old looks at it wrong, and it pops. Okay? What does this mean? That means if you have put invested your life and your ego is soothed by what you do at work and how well you work, the single, like the single moment that anyone gives you any pushback or criticism, it goes straight to your heart. You're like a popped balloon, deflated and falling to the ground. And so we have this problem with our ego. We think we're either too low of ourselves or too high of ourselves. But as C.S. Lewis says, Christian maturity is not thinking more or less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So what does this mean? It means we need to reckon with what this justice brings. There's a relational debt between God and man. And so what is this debt? How do we get the reversal of this debt? How do we have enough in our account in order to get us to say and, and confront justice? We need to be transparent about what we've done. We need to be clear about who we are. We need to confess that we ain't got it together. And more than that, when you have hurt somebody, this is what it means. Especially for little kids. I have like this weird coaching training thing with my four little ones. Whenever one of my kids offends the other ones, what do I do? I'm like, what did you do? Right? So they say what they did. Then I make them do something else. Uh, this is parenting advice. There, there you go. Then I say, what did you take from them? Meaning this. What did it cost the other person when you offended them? And many of us. We need to be clear about what we have taken from God. What we've taken from our loved ones when we hurt and offend others. Because if it is not clearly out there, we'll always wonder why. And it can't be paid for correctly on the cross. We have to be transparent. We need to, the only way we can overcome our denial, blame shifting, and deflecting is to know that God has substituted himself for us and to get that at the heart. Because in Christianity, the verdict comes before the performance. It happens in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. So your account goes from the red to the black in Jesus. And so you can overcome all your denying, blame shifting, and deflecting. And so when your loved one comes to you and say, you hurt me this way, you have the freedom and ability to say, yes, I did. Because you know ultimately that thing that you did isn't going to defeat you and crush you. Because it defeated and crushed Jesus on the cross. 
And so we could say with the hymn this Augustus top lady about Jesus our substitute. Oh Jesus be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. When you realize that it is not your efforts or your performance, but you have the performance in Jesus Christ, then your bank account is full and you can confess and readily know and acknowledge what you have taken. And so we must reckon with justice and confess we're all needy. But we must also reckon, and that reckoning comes also with the reckoning of love. I uh, did a wedding right over there yesterday and um something struck me i don't cry during weddings because i feel like i've done like a thousand of these and it's kind of like the sheen and the novelty is worn off and so but yesterday i almost cried i was like ah what what is it something's in my eye it's a dust particle but it was i didn't really say anything because this is what happens when love reckons with justice when love reckons with the fact that we are messed up Flawed, that the person that you're always standing next to and the person walking down the aisle hasn't got it all together. That love covers over a multitude of sins. It can get into you. It can mess with you. And so I did the weirdest thing. I said, like, the bride comes down. I know their stories. I know that they know all kinds of things about them, but they're choosing each other. And I look at the, at the groom and I say, go get your and he walks down. And I don't know what it was, but there was a strange reminder that Jesus, lo God loves his people so much in their flaws, in their mess-ups, in all their debts, that he will absorb the debt on himself by coming down, ripping open heaven and earth, and pursuing his bride with passionate love. You see, your debts, your mess-ups, your flaws, your shame is no, no match for the passionate love of God. It's no match. You see, when love meets the need of the beloved, there is substitution. There is the, in that meeting of lovers, shame and guilt and offenses and inadequacies meet passion and power and desire of love. And it pays the debt that was owed. The wanting of one by the other, that love, that passion, it takes it into oneself. It takes the faults and failures of the other. And it says, me for you. Me for you. Jonah says, take me, throw me into the sea and it will calm down for you. See, there's a storm in our hearts. That, debt, that the debts and, and failures and guilt and shame has put on us. And the only calming of that storm is someone substituting themselves in love for me. For someone telling us that you are worthwhile, that you are wanted, that you are loved, that you are chosen. And Jesus Christ is the story of God's love. Passionate. Piercing. Never ending, always and forever love coming to get you. God commits himself to a people, but we run away. We sin against God. And what does he do? He meets his justice with his love. God gives his son to save his children. Because we're worth it? Because we're worthy? 
No, because he loves us. And he loses himself in the storm of justice. Love substitutes for the beloved. Love covers a multitude of sins. St. Anselm says this, Although the debt was so great that man owed it alone, only God could pay it. Do you have a love like that? I know I preach it a lot. I preach it like every week. But I'll be honest. Sometimes I'm just going through the motions. Sometimes I believe that grace is good enough for you, but I have a really hard time believing grace is good enough for me. That Jesus actually loves and cares for me, and he substitutes himself for me. I wonder if you struggle with that too. That God loves us so passionately that he would give himself for us. We need to let that sink down. Jesus takes the blame for us. Jesus is the innocent substitute who was thrown in the storm of justice. Not for his sin, but for ours. Paying the debts of our sin, not his, because he loves us. Jesus takes the abandonment, the shame, the f- everything we fear about ourselves. People turned their faces from him. He was spat on. They ripped out his beard. He was hung naked, exposed on the cross. And he takes the pain, the pain of running from God, death itself. And he dies as a rebel on the cross so you can be held as his child. And why does he bear that? Why does he go through that? Why does he take the debt on himself? Because you're his beloved. He substitutes himself. As any passionate lover would. Let us pray. Almighty God, meet us in the Lord's Supper that we may see your passionate love for your people, substituting for your people, that we may be transformed into people who may sacrifice and give of ourselves and not self-protect. Lord, help us to have the strength to refuse to blame shift, to downplay, to deflect, but to embrace all these cuts as little surgeries on ourselves, so that we may think not less of ourselves, not more of ourselves, but think of ourselves less. Help us, Lord. Meet us now. In Christ's name, amen.